We've trained over 5,000 scientists this year in non-animal methods. The reason we spend so much effort training scientists and training regulators is because we know it works. And we have had a couple of victories this year that we're very excited about. We worked with the University of British Columbia to stop their annual course from using animals before it even happened. And this was the culmination of almost nine-year campaign to get the University of Washington to stop using and killing pigs to train paramedics. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. Tupelo, Mississippi, Parma, Ohio, Portland, Maine, and Mesa, Arizona. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 102 of season 4, number 297 overall. And today we are actually going to be shining two spotlights. The first, actually on animals and our extraordinary life-saving efforts with them this year. And then we're going to circle back and talk nutrition. Chiefly, how can a plant-based diet help someone with type 1 diabetes? because we are about to conduct some major research here at the Physicians Committee to seek out that very answer. But I want to start today with an exciting announcement, and that is that your donation to the Physicians Committee will be doubled through the end of the year. That means every single dollar that you donate through December 31st will be matched up to $200,000. And all of that goes to continue our life-saving work, both with our amazing nutrition research that you're gonna hear about today, as well as with the animals, saving them from pointless experiments every single year, ones that are being done in the name of what has become outdated science. And as you will hear today, there are much better methods available, methods that are faster and more effective and directly translate to results that can benefit you and me. It has been a busy year this year, working on all of this. So many different successes to tell you about on the animal front, from educating the next generation of scientists and saving lives this generation and moving science into a much kinder direction. Very good news with all of that coming up with our Vice President of Research Policy, Christy Sullivan. And then after that, you'll be hearing from Dr. Hanna Kaliova as we shift back to the nutrition front because she, she and her team are the ones conducting that exciting new research on the role that a plant-based diet can have on type 1 diabetes. We do speak so often about type 2 diabetes, but what about type 1? Well, she will tell you what we know so far and tell you a little bit about the research that they will be working on to get some more answers. And best of all, she will also tell you how you may be able to get involved in that research and play a crucial role. So stay tuned for that. But let's begin right now with our animal welfare efforts and celebrating our successes this year with Christy Sullivan. Christy, thank you so very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Chuck. 
this has really been a banner year. I can't think of more than a week or two that went by without getting some sort of major exciting update from your team. I mean, just before we dive into the highlights, what has this year been like for you? Well, you might think that um, things would slow down with the pandemic, right? Where um, people are not working as much or they have other things they're worried about. But that's not the case here at the Physicians Committee. There is so much to do that we are always looking for ways to help get animals out of laboratories, to replace them with more human-relevant methods. And there are still lots of opportunities for us to do that and to continue to promote, um, to promote good non-animal science. Let's talk about some of the big ones from this past year. And I want to start with Wayne State University, which is, uh, that is something that I know you guys had your site set on for some time. And there's been a lot of movement up in Michigan with this. So what was going on at Wayne State and how have we been able to help? Right. So uh, Wayne State has been experimenting on dogs for a long time um, and they're using these dogs in experiments that are supposed to tell us about the cardiac health of of people, how we can help people who have um, heart issues um, um, who might be going into heart failure or might be at risk of heart failure and how we can help them. And we know how we can can help them. Um, And we can research research new ways to help them using human relevant methods, either using uh, patients in clinical trials and clinical studies or um, uh, observational studies, or even using donated human tissues and organs to analyze uh, human cardiac health. But these researchers at Wayne State are using dogs. Um, they, They subject them to surgeries, hook them up to treadmills and measure their cardiac function and the dogs die at the end of the experiments. So we have been trying to get Wayne State to stop doing these studies. And we have recently um, found some help in the Michigan legislature. So we have um, a bill in the legislature introduced that would prevent um, deadly, painful dog experiments uh, in the state of Michigan. Uh, We've put up billboards all over Detroit with stories of individual dogs killed at Wayne State to raise awareness. We have a um, coalition of lawmakers who have written to the school's president to highlight the issue and ask them to stop doing these experiments. So we um, are working hard in the state of Michigan um, using the legislature's power to try to, to prevent Wayne State from killing these dogs. And just to be crystal clear about this, we're pushing for that. But at the same time, there are 100% non-animal human relevant methods that could completely replace these tests, correct? That's right. There are lots of ways to study uh, human cardiac health, as I've said. And so speaking of studying, let's talk about studying among so many people this year who you and your team work tirelessly to educate about non-animal methods here. How many scientists have you had the opportunity to kind of, as I would say, coach up when it comes to uh, ending animal experiments this year? 
Well, believe it or not, uh, we've trained over 5,000 scientists this year in non-animal methods. So a different, different modalities of training, certainly. We've held a number of um, multi-day long, you know, two, three-hour trainings to really get into details of, of the, of the non-animal methods and how they're used. Um, or, and we also hold uh, webinars that are shorter. They include lots of people and it's just sort of a general overview of a particular topic. Um, one, one maybe silver lining of the pandemic is that everyone has gotten accustomed to these online webinar programs like Zoom. And we have been able to use that to our advantage and reach people not only in the United States, uh, but in Europe, in South America, in Africa, so that people who are studying toxicology for a living, either they're you know, students learning how to be toxicologists, or they're already into their career, maybe they're um, you know, a, someone at a company trying to study chemicals and, and their effects on uh, or potential effects on human health or the environment, or they're a regular regulator at the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, all of these folks need to learn the latest. They need to stay up to date on the best human relevant non-animal toxicology methods. And we provide them an opportunity to do that. Uh, that's free, easily available. They can just sit at their desk and, and watch these programs and participate in them. And it, we, the reason we spend so much effort training scientists and training regulators is because we know it works. Um, there are lots of methods out there that, that are non-animal that could replace animals, but they haven't yet because there are all these really difficult to define barriers, um, like, um, lack of training, uh, lack of understanding of what, what the, uh, non-animal methods can do, um, regulator comfort is sometimes a term that is used to express, um, you know, lack of knowledge or understanding and um, regulations that are in place and that kind of prevent the implementation of new methods. So these training sessions that we hold allow people to talk about those barriers, to learn about the non-animal methods. And, and we know based on surveys and based on experience that they do, once they've gone through trainings like this, they do um, accept or use the alternative methods. And my hope would be that they also speak to their colleagues about the things that they've just learned. And if you do the math there, you're talking about, you said over 5,000, but if we just use the number 5,000, that's almost 14 researchers every single day that are learning about this. And that is just phenomenal to me. That is, that is a great number. And I suspect that that number will continue to climb into the new year. Um, and to this end, you're talking about education and uh, coaching up the researchers and the scientists. Well, talk to us about the success that you've had with our animals and education labs this year. Yeah, so most people know that we for a long time have been working to replace the use of animals in medical training, different kinds of medical training from medical school all the way to, you know, postgraduate residency training. And we have had uh, a couple of victories this year that we're very excited about. Uh, we um, 
we um, shut down Vanderbilt University's training lab in which animals were cut open and killed to train doctors. We also worked with the University of British Columbia to um, stop their annual course from using animals before it even happened. And then uh, this was the culmination of an almost nine-year campaign to get the University of Washington to stop using and killing pigs to train paramedics. So we've gotten all, all three of those switched over to human-relevant methods, um, which is going to be helpful for their students, certainly. But it doesn't just stop with human-relevant testing here, because you're also working to end a lot of this when it comes to veterinarians as well. We've had some success there. Well, people might be surprised to know that many veterinary schools, when, um, when you're training to be a veterinarian, there is something called a terminal surgery lab, where you learn to um, do surgeries on animals, and those animals are killed at the end of this training courses. And so we are one of the only groups working on this um, and trying to convince these, these veterinarian schools to, to stop doing those terminal labs and, and use other ways to teach their students surgical procedures. So uh, this year we've um, been able to convince Tuskegee University and the University of Auburn, both of those veterinary schools have stopped doing their terminal, terminal uh, surgery labs. That's that's fantastic. Uh, that's fantastic. That's and uh, yeah, and I'm guessing that uh, there are others uh, who hopefully will be following suit here um, in the future. Um, I I'll, I want to go back though to uh, probably something that is more uh, on the human side of things as well as far as like human testing, and that would be uh, toxicology tests. I know that uh, specifically you and I have talked off camera about these dermal absorption tests. Um, had a big victory there as well. Uh, talk to us about what those are and what we were able to do. Well, this is very exciting for me in particular because uh, I, uh, I have been working on this for some time uh, with a coalition of, of stakeholders. But so the dermal absorption test is a, a test that has been required in the past for pesticides. If a pesticide company wants to put a pesticide on the market, they need to know is that pesticide going to be absorbed through the skin of, for example, workers in the fields? And so um, they would take 40 animals and put the pesticide on the animal's skin and then kill the animals to see where in their body this, and, and how much of the pesticide has been absorbed through the skin. But there has been an alternative available for some time. You can take um, donated skin from humans and create a little circular biopsy of that skin in the laboratory. You put the pesticide on that biopsy of skin and see how it absorbs. And then what you have is a measure of how the pesticide actually absorbs through human skin, which is, which is the measurement that we want anyway. Um, so we, um, a few years ago, we put, brought together all of the regulators and the, um, pesticide companies and the test method developers to figure out what are the barriers, why is this test which is available, which is better not being used. And we talked through those, we published um, an analysis in the literature, and then there was another sort of analysis by some of the pesticide companies. And so this year, um, the EPA and Health Canada have started accepting the in vitro test alone. And we're saving about 400 animals every year with getting rid of that, that test. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. And, um, I, 
I, I want to end kind of on a big one that we have also talked a lot about at the Physicians Committee. Um, this is something that our members have really gotten behind. And it's something that for me personally had flown way under the radar until you guys started talking about that. And that is the use of horseshoe crabs and the development of certain vaccines um, and and. I just, it never even dawned on me that a horseshoe crab could get wrapped up in all of this, but it's a major problem. Yeah, it is. Um, so th what they're used for is to test pyrogenicity. So we want to know, are vaccines and other injectable drugs, are they contaminated with bacteria that will cause a fever reaction if they're injected into patients? And this isn't just like most toxicity tests where they are conducted once at the beginning of the product marketing cycle. This is a test that's conducted on every lot, you know, every batch has to be tested to make sure that it's not contaminated. And sometimes ingredients that are going into the vaccines or the injectable drugs also have to be tested. So we're talking about billions of these tests every year, if you think about the, you know, the coronavirus vaccine and how many of those are being produced. Um, it used to be that this test was conducted in rabbits, and most of that testing has been replaced by this horseshoe crab-based test. What they do is they go out into the ocean, they um, capture horseshoe crabs, they bring them to a laboratory, and they take some of their blood, and then they take them back out to the ocean and release them. And this is touted as an alternative because it's not using a live rabbit, it's only using the horseshoe crab's blood, but you have to get that blood from those animals. And of course, it causes them trauma and pain and suffering. And we know that a certain percentage of horseshoe crabs do not live, they're released back into the ocean and die. Um, so it's, these animals are fascinating animals. They've been around since before the dinosaurs. And so it's, it's really a shame that we've now turned them into this blood factory in order to test the vaccines, especially because we have um, a laboratory produced recombinant that can do the same thing as, as the material in the blood can do, can assess the vaccines for pyrogen contamination. So what we're doing is we're we're working with um, the major vaccine companies and pharmaceutical companies together in a coalition, and we're working to convince the Food and Drug Administration and another agency that people probably aren't aware of, the U.S. Pharmacopeia, which sets they both these agencies set these standards for these tests. Um, we're, so we're working together with them to push forward acceptance of the recombinant alternative. And we're making great progress. This year we had um, two sort of closed door meetings where we talked through all of the issues, just like with the dermal absorption. Um, and, and we're um, working together with those companies to provide whatever data might be necessary in order to allow the regulatory agency to accept the alternatives. And I think in the next year, we're going to see that come to pass. I've always been of the belief that when it comes to big business, big pharma, that money talks. Have you been able to do a cost analysis of these human relevant methods versus the traditional testing that we're seeing right now, generally speaking? Yeah. I mean, it really depends, to be honest, on the test. 
uh, because uh, sometimes the tests are less expensive or they're faster, but sometimes there is an, there's a sort of a startup cost, if you will, because they're, all their processes are within this, the current test and, and, and are kind of adapted to all of that. And so if they have to change over to a new test, there's some cost to that, to change their systems, to change their, their you know, procedures and everything. But what's interesting with the pyrogenicity situation that we have found is, is when we talk to companies, they say, this is our ultimate goal is to not use animals. And so we're willing to put up that, put, put in that extra upfront cost in order to get to that ultimate goal, because, um, because we see it as our corporate responsibility to avoid doing that. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, just like with a lot of other investments, you put that money up front, but then long-term you start to see this, this big return on said investment. And maybe that's where the cost savings come, uh, you know, in a number of years, but long-term, I would think from a fiscal standpoint, uh, it'd be a, a really beneficial thing. Um, and then last point here is that when we're talking about these different methods of testing here, um, you are aware and you brought to my attention something that is called animal model bias when researchers are trying to get their data published. What is that? What is the problem that's happening here? Well, this is a huge concern because we know that there, and, and we've talked before about really advanced human-based methods like uh, you know the lung on a chip or these really cool guts on a chip or different, different models that are much better than using a mouse to model diabetes. Um, but scientists' main way to be successful is to publish their, their findings in the scientific literature. So they submit their papers to journals and, and then and they get published and that's how other scientists find out about their work. And we have started to hear kind of rumors that um, scientists who use in vitro models, human-based methods, um, we're, we're having a hard time publishing their work. And we're even potentially being asked to do animal experiments in order to demonstrate that the, the, the data that they found with their human-based method was, was right, which doesn't really make any sense at all. Um, but so we decided to look into this. And so our team has been working with another organization to do a big survey of scientists to see whether there was any truth to these rumors. And so we've got the paper um, um, and the survey results. We're analyzing them and we're about to put them in uh, a paper of our own in the scientific literature to call attention to this problem. We definitely found that scientists um, are asked by the journal editors and reviewers to validate their findings in animal models, which is which is not um, what they should have to be doing because it, that's animals that are killed for no reason. Um, and it also perpetuates this idea that animal experiments are better than human-based in vitro methods, which we know is not the case. All right. And last but not least, made a lot of progress this past year with schools in particular. Looking ahead to the new year, 2022, give me a cliffhanger. How many schools right now are in your sites? 
Well, we are going to get all of them eventually, but we have <laughs> about six of them that we're really actively campaigning uh, to right now, trying to get them to replace their animal uh, training programs. So um, we we have to be a little opportunistic. Sometimes, uh, you know, our plans are such as they are, and then some something comes up such that we'll be able to... Um, address another school but yeah we've got about six medical schools in our sites we'll see uh what we'll be able to achieve of course with pcrm supporters uh are always behind us uh it's um we know we will win and uh, we'll we'll just have to see Stay tuned. 2022, it's going to be an exciting year. Lots of work still to do, but I have no doubt that you and your team are going to accomplish even more great things. Christy Sullivan, Vice President of Research Policy, thank you so very much for joining us and Happy New Year. Thanks and same to you. Listen, we need your support right now more than ever to continue the life-saving efforts that Christy and her team are putting forward every single day. And right now that support can also go twice as far because your gift to the Physicians Committee will be matched through December 31st up to $200,000 to have the greatest impact on the work that we are doing. So please take advantage of this special offer by making a donation today. And know that your gift will support our mission to stop the cruel and ineffective use of animals in research laboratories and medical training. It will also go to promote preventative medicine and teach others the power of plant-based nutrition. And when you put both of those things together, you create a more compassionate and healthy world. PCRM.org slash donate is the web address to give and have your dollars doubled. And all donors are considered Physicians Committee members working together as a team to save lives. PCRM.org slash donate is the web address to become a member today. And yes, there is a link in the episode notes. And I'm also excited to announce that we will be having Christy on every month next year to give us an update on all of the animals that they're continuing to save. And if that sounds like something that you would like to get involved with, well, there is now one more way that you can help. And that is to sponsor that segment. So imagine this. Imagine the kind animal update brought to you by you. You can do that. You can support the exam room, support our life-saving efforts, both with animals and our fellow man. And you can make 2022 the most impactful year ever. And you'll get some goodwill toward all creatures, great and small. And if you are interested, please reach out to me right now. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. Please send me a direct message there. You can also find me on Facebook. Make sure when you send that message, just be sure to include your name and your email address, and we will be right back in touch with you because we would love to have your support as we head into the new year. But right now, it's time to turn the page on this show. Flip over to Nutrition, where our team is also preparing to work on a new study 
that could have major ramifications for the treatment of type 1 diabetes. Dr. Hanakaliova and her team want to know how a plant-based diet can impact the nearly 10 million people worldwide who are living with type 1 diabetes. So she is here to tell us what we know so far and what else we hope to find out from this study and even how you may be able to get involved. Dr. Hanakaliova, welcome back to The Examiner. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Uh, you know, it's, it's such a joy to, to talk about diabetes and nutrition. And as you mentioned, most of the time when we think about diabetes, we, we talk about type 2 diabetes. But what about if you have type 1 diabetes? Is there a role of nutrition? You know, is there, uh, is there something that you could do with nutrition that will influence your diabetes? Um, the number of studies on the role of nutrition in type 1 diabetes is much more limited. Uh, but at least we have a glimpse and we also need more studies. And that's exactly what, why we're doing the podcast today. Uh, so the type 1, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease that's characterized by beta cell dysfunction, where the beta cells in your pancreas will not produce enough insulin for, for the body's needs. So these people uh, need to inject insulin for the rest of their life. But there's also a second component uh, to the disease, and then that's insulin resistance. And when I say insulin resistance, most of you uh, are probably like, what? I thought that would be a mechanism that's included in type 2 diabetes, um, which is true. It plays a, a more important role in type 2 diabetes, but it's also present in type 1 diabetes to a certain degree. Uh, and insulin resistance is basically uh, the uh, inability to, of the cells to respond to insulin as much as, as we'd like. Uh, so insulin is like a key that opens the door for glucose to come into the cells. And if the door lock is jammed, that would be insulin resistance. All of a the sudden there's insulin, but it's just not working and it, it cannot open the door uh, and the glucose cannot come into the cells. Uh, and so, uh, you know, affecting the beta cells in the pancreas is much more challenging than influencing the insulin resistance. Uh, so we are trying to target the insulin resistance of the as a component of type 1 diabetes through nutrition. And now with the, with the limited amount of studies and that has been published on the role of diet in, in type 1 diabetes, we realize that there is a big need for new studies. And I need to tell you, uh, we came up with a research study that you can participate in or your friends with type 1 diabetes can participate in. Uh, the study is a randomized clinical trial where uh, um, people who are interested in participating will be like with a flip of a coin, randomized to either follow a portion-controlled carbohydrate-watching diet where you need to car uh, count your carbs and uh, um, you need to watch your portions 
or to a low-fat vegan diet consisted of fruits and grains and legumes and vegetables. Now, how are these approaches different? They're very different. The portion control diet uh, is relatively low in carbohydrates and it's basically limiting the amount of glucose that we uh, that gets into your bloodstream. Uh, so that's the sugar that's, that's inside the blood cells. And uh, we just limit the amount of glucose that's inside the blood vessels. And that's how we can regulate the, the level of blood sugar. The low-fat vegan diet is a high-carbohydrate diet, right? There's fruits and there's grains, there's legumes and vegetables. All of these are sources of carbohydrates. And it addresses mainly the, uh, the insulin resistance. Uh, the idea behind is that the insulin resistance is eventually caused by uh, fat that's stored inside the cells, inside the muscle cells and liver cells where it doesn't belong to. So if we can get rid of this, this extra fat, the insulin resistance will improve. And uh, since the, this low-fat vegan diet is very low in fat, um, the idea behind is that we will mo mobilize the intracellular fat, the fat stored inside the cells. Now, if, if you'd like to participate in the study, uh, then you, what, what will you get? You will get weekly classes on Wednesday evenings over Zoom. Uh, you, will, you will get a Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitoring system. So on your phone, you will see continually how your blood sugar looks, looks like. Uh, but you, we will ask you to give us access to your data so that we can also help you um, if, if there is any adjustments that are needed. You will also uh, get a scale, a, digi a digital scale, um, vitamin B12 um, that's essential for people on vegan diets. Uh, we give it to all participants in both groups. Some medications also uh, decrease um, the absorption of vitamin B12. And generally speaking, as we age, the absorption of vitamin B12 is lower and lower. So you will benefit from taking the vitamin B12 supplement. If you are in the portion control diet, you will get some resources. You will get the book, Think Like a Pancreas. I wish all of us could think like a pancreas. I, you know, I was really inspired by this. I was like, you know, this is a great book. I mean, uh, I wish all of us could think like a pancreas. And also a cookbook. Uh, but if you are on a low-fat vegan diet, don't worry, you, you will get other resources. You will also get a cookbook and a book uh, from Mastering Diabetes and also a com companion book that will help you keep the fat content of the diet low. Now, we start uh, in late January with this study or maybe even early February. In the first week, we only change the breakfasts. Then in the second week, we change the lunches also. And then in the third week, finally, we also change the dinners and snacks, which means that 
all the menu is already changed. Uh, now you can probably imagine how the portion control diet looks like, uh, but you probably don't know exactly what it means to be on a low-fat vegan diet. So for the for the low-fat vegan diet, the diet is vegan, which which means no animal products, no meat, no cheese, no dairy, no eggs. Uh, it's low fat. That means that the fat content is up to 20 to 30 grams per day. And we also keep the glycemic index low. Uh, you know, when you look at the power plate, uh, the diet consists of fruits and grains and legumes and vegetables. Uh, and how to keep the fat content low? You may be thinking, well, if I saute my onions, I need oil. Uh, but you can also replace the oil with soy sauce or vegetable broth, or you can use some water. Uh, you will be asked to watch the, the fat content of the packaged foods, like for example, beans are perfect because uh, the upper limit for the fat content is two to three grams per serving. And this particular can of beans doesn't have any fat in them. So it's ideal. And you may realize that some of the, the vegan foods will not be compliant to the dietary recommendations on the study. So for example, Amy's black bean burrito, when you look at the fat content, it's eight grams per, per serving. So this would not meet the study criteria. Now, uh, we know that glycemic index uh, is important for people with diabetes. Uh, it uh, helps with glycemic control, also with blood lipids and with body weight and with inflammation. And so when we look at our food groups, fruits and grains and legumes and vegetables, we can uh, create categories uh, the low glycemic index foods would be lower than 55, medium up to 69, and high glycemic index foods at least 70. Uh, when we look at non-starchy vegetables, all of them are, are wonderful. You don't need to limit the intake of non-starchy vegetables at all. When we look at beans, it's the same. Uh, all of them are great. Uh, your, your beans and split peas and your lentils, uh, no limit on the consumption of those. The same is true for most of the fruits, except for watermelon, where um, you, will, you may need to be more careful with the portions, uh, or with other juicy fruit like mango and pineapple. Uh, for grains, all the old-fashioned grains are in. Barley and bulgur and corn tortillas and millet and quinoa and buckwheat and rolled oats. All of these are completely compliant. Uh, the same with rye, rice bran and spaghetti uh, and wild rice. Where it gets a little bit trickier is sweet potatoes and white rice and couscous. Uh, you need to be more careful with the portions. And this, and uh, there's also high glycemic index foods in, in grains uh, and starches, baked potatoes and instant oatmeal uh, and white bread, for example, or a bagel. 
Now, does it mean that you will not be able to eat any of those on the study? Uh, no. If you want to have a baked potato, you, you still can. You can just load up on veggies uh, and have, let's say, bean chili with it. Uh, and that way you will lower the, the overall glycemic index of the, of the meal. Uh, and the same applies when you want to eat an ba a bagel. Uh, it's a high glycemic index food. Um, but if you have just a small piece and have a lot of vegetables and low-fat hummus, uh, you can still eat it and you will be compliant with the study requirements. So uh, to summarize, uh, the vegetables and the legumes are all low glycemic index and there's no considerations needed uh, for fruits. Most of them will be compliant. There's just a few kinds where you, you may need to be a little bit more careful. And with grains, there are some additional considerations um, that are needed. Uh, now, I need to let you know, if you want to participate in the study, uh, there might be some up and downs in your blood sugar. If your blood sugar is going too high, you may need to include more vegetables and more, and more beans with your meals. If it's running too low, we may need to adjust your insulin uh, and decrease the dose before the meal so that you don't uh, get too low the next time. There's also some um, digital resources. You can download the 21-day the Kickstart program on your, uh, on your phone. And if you're interested in participating, I'd like to encourage you to contact our study coordinator, Tati, uh, here is her contact email address and her phone number. And we also have a, a study website, and uh, that one will be posted below. Uh, so which diet is best for type 1 diabetes? The answer is we don't know yet, and we need your help to, to sort this out. Is it the carbohydrate-watching portion-control diet that limits the intake of carbohydrate? Or is it a high-carbohydrate, low-fat vegan diet? Uh, so I, we would greatly appreciate your help in uh, answering this question, uh, in helping us uh, with the recruitment for the study. So if you have type 1 diabetes or if you know someone with type 1 diabetes or if you're a physician and you have patients with type 1 diabetes, um, please let us know. Really important research uh, because so often, and, and I was talking about this recently with Dr. Dean Ornish as well, is like so much of this um, focus with diabetes is, is on type 2. Um, but now here we are with type 1. And I think that that's really, you're going to be unlocking um, some answers, hopefully, for a lot of people. And I noticed that the Mastering Diabetes book was included uh, in this study. And um, anecdotally here, um, you know, Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Rabbi Barbero, who put those two together, both of them have um, type 1 diabetes and, and have seen pretty good results. So that's just two people. We need a lot more than that to be able to have um, a definitive answer. And that's why you're doing the study. And I think that it's fantastic. So when does, when does the study begin? The study will start at the end of January or early February. 
So we have enough time. You have enough time to think about it, sign up, uh, then enjoy our holidays and start with the diet after New Year's. I like that. Start with the diet after New Year's. How many people say that? <laughs> Everybody, right? Um, so, okay. Well, listen, uh, best of luck with the study. Uh, I hope to keep tabs with you um, to see how things are going. And then uh, when it's through and, and you guys are ready to publish, I would love Dr. Kaliova for you to come back on and, and share your findings with us. Thank you so much, Chuck. I have a sneaking suspicion that Cyrus Kambata and Ravi Barbero from Mastering Diabetes will be keeping a very close eye on Dr. Kaliova's research. And you can find a link to apply to participate in the study right now in the episode notes. So we only have a few more shows left this year. It has flown by. And our next show is a Q&A, a primer to kick off your new year in the healthiest way possible. We are going all in with nutrition and dietitian Karen Smith. She will be joining us live on Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. And if you can't join us live, you can always catch the replay right back here on the podcast on Thursday. And if you're so inclined, you can send in your questions for any of our live Q&As ahead of time. But this Thursday, we will be opening up the dietitian's mailbag. So maybe you're wondering about nutrients or about the healthiest foods for 2022. Or maybe you're just wondering about anything related to diet and disease and living a longer and healthier life. Well, we would love to help clear up any nutrition confusion for you. So send me your questions on Twitter or Instagram. I am at Chuck Carroll WLC or join us live on Wednesday. And if you haven't already subscribed to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee, please go ahead and take a second to do that on Apple Podcast or on Spotify, wherever shows are available. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating because every new subscription and five-star rating, I promise you this, truly does help to get this potentially life-saving information to those who need it the most. And for today... That is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Christy Sullivan and Dr. Hanna Kaliova for joining us. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>